Hi, everybody. Welcome to Pockets Full of Soup, the storytelling show. I'm your host, Jared Petty. I'm joined today by Steve Butts. Steve Butts, where do people know you from? Uh, well, most people probably know me as the editor-in-chief of IGN. Editor-in-chief? Yes. You're the chief of something? I'm the chief of editors. The yeah, chief exactly. of editors. Yeah. If there's any other editors, yeah. do they call you chief? Uh, I have had people on staff refer to me as chief. Yeah, like yeah. in a, like in a like Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen, Olsen sense? Perry White yeah. type deal. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of beautiful. I have also that Perry White kind of response to that as well. Okay. Which is? Uh, Which is don't call me chief. Don't call me chief. There yeah. we go. All right, I like that. Yeah. This is kind of, kind of, that's also, what was that? Sorry about that chief. That, no, that was, that was uh, Agent 99, right? That was yes. Max, no, yes. eight, yeah, 86? 86, uh, 99 was 99, Barbara Felton. Yes. 86 was Maxwell Smart. Yes. Okay. And he was always sorry about that chief. He was always sorry about Is that. Is everybody right? ever like sorry about that chief to you? Yeah. Every yeah. once in a while. But I don't think they know that that's what that means. Okay. What does an editor in chief do? Do you do you edit everything? No. No? I edit Almost nothing, unless what? somebody uh, on my senior team is out and I have to fill in for them. No, an editor-in-chief's job is, uh, it, it's different for every editor-in-chief. I think okay. each one brings a little something different to the role. The way that I define it is, um, it's my job to interface between the executive leadership, Ed Ziff Davis, and the direction that they want to take the company and the operational level um, sort of implementation of that vision, which is led by the assigning editors and Sam Claiborne. So if you were a fidget spinner, because uh -huh. that's the that's the oh, topic no du jour. Idea. No idea where this is going. <laughs> You'd be that part that everything like kind of spins around. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely. So the part the, in all the tension and, yeah. and okay, there we go. That is actually a great definition of my role. <laughs> so there there are three groups constantly competing for uh, priority and preference and resources. Uh, one is the staff, one is the audience, and one is the business. Okay. And so my job is to sit at the intersection of those three desires and make sure that no one overwhelms the other so at the end of the day the staff has to be happy the audience has to be happy and the people who count the money have to be happy and if okay. they're all happy then i'm doing a good job there we go yeah. all right how you doing i'm doing very well i'm very excited to be here i'm very today. happy to have you here I, you were an old friend of mine i mean you it's, it's an odd saying old friend because the bay area portion of my life still in a weird way feels mm -hmm. kind of new but it, we've known each other a long time now i consider you an old friend yeah yes oh that Absolutely. makes you feel so good <laughs> i consider you an old friend too and i'm so happy to have you here i'm happy for a lot of reasons happy because i i, I like you i happy because i have tremendous respect for you you're one of the smartest human beings i've ever met you're 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 without trying to pour it on no. your neurons just flow real poor, well poor. uh yeah you uh you you've engaged You've dedicated yourself to study for a good portion of your life, and mm -hmm. you've continued to make that part of your life. And and I, I think that that clicks in you in a way that, that it doesn't for a lot of us, which makes you a very engaging conversationalist mm. and also a great storyteller. And that's why I'm glad to have you here today. Oh. So. Well, I appreciate that. And I always like uh, being able to sit down with you and talk about the things because we have such a um, – we're both from North Carolina, so we I think are. we have sort of a shared frame of reference that makes it easy for us to communicate about childhood and, and the things that mattered to us when we were growing up. We share a lot of uh, avocations. We're both uh, RPG players. We're both yep. uh, theists and kind of well, – I'm, I'm an amateur theologian. You're a – I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think we, am I what am I a commentator now? I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, so, you know. anyway. The, the point is is that you and I can talk about a lot of things 
that we uh, share interest in mutually. Yeah, and I now, appreciate we that. can say that's because of North Carolina and because of feeism, right. and because of share, but really, is it just because we're old? <laughs> that's part of it too. Okay, yeah. there we go. All right, that, that's part of it. What's uh, you mentioned North Carolina? What's something the average human not from North Carolina doesn't know about North Carolina that they probably ought to? Well, like, first uh, off. Doesn't. That's a big one. Okay. That's a big one. Most people say doesn't, but when you're from North Carolina, you say doesn't. Um, you know, I think that there are a couple things most people probably have misconceptions about with North Carolina. Yeah. Um, a lot of their conceptions about North Carolina are probably spot on just in terms of, <laughs> of attitude and cultural values. Uh, no, North Carolina is a beautiful state. Yeah. Um, it is uh, a very big college state. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of education happening uh, throughout the state. Um, tons of college towns uh, from Chapel Hill to Charlotte to Greensboro to Asheville. To yep. um, and so uh, there's that. Um, we are known for having a lot of writers uh, and a lot of humorists. Andy yeah. Griffith, very famously. Uh, That's true. North Carolina. Um, Andy Griffith is one of my heroes. I think he's hilarious. So People funny. forget, yeah. I think, sometimes because of, I think it, we finally reached that place where where uh, the Andy Griffith show isn't on television all the time. Right. And so people have lost context with what it actually was and forget it was a comedy. Yeah. And that he yeah. was a humorist yeah. uh, and a ridiculously gifted yeah. one. What it was was football is still one of my favorite bits. Big orange. Yeah. yeah. So, so good. Um, and also pigs and barbecue. Uh, North Carolina, a lot of people think of for tobacco, but really it's more of a pig state. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a sort of east versus west divide in terms of how you like your barbecue. Oh, that local. Okay, so Poxville Super visitors, uh, frequent <laughs> listeners, reasonably familiar with barbecue rants. That's mm-hmm. one of our that's sure. one of our go-tos. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. So, I'm so ready for this. Uh, so let's, let's hear about, we haven't described the Carolina subdivide on this program before. Right. Please go for it. So I almost today wore a Stamey shirt. I was deciding what am I going to wear today. You almost wore a Stamey's barbecue shirt? I almost wore a Stamey shirt today. It is is on the top of my t-shirt pile in my dresser because I was deciding what am I going to wear for Jared's show today. And it was this, which I thought was a little more professional, and then Stamey's, which I thought... (laughs) Would make you happy. Um, that would make me so happy. Any, anyway, so so in North Carolina, barbecue is um, is a noun and a verb, but yeah. it means something different there than it means out here. A lot of people on the West Coast, and, and probably in other parts of the country, the Midwest yeah. maybe, when they say barbecue, what they mean is cookout. Right, cookout, right. grilling. Yeah, they yeah. want to go outside and they want to grill hot dogs and, and hamburgers. That's not a barbecue in North Carolina. Right. It's real good, yeah, but it ain't a barbecue. Great. Yeah, that's a, that's a cookout or, or you're grilling out. Um, barbecue is a type of food preparation for pig uh, with shredded pork. Like you pull it apart. You, it's a slow cook process with different types of wood to provide seasoning for the meat. Yep. Um, and the east versus west divide is whether you like sort of the mustard-based vinegary type sauces or the more ketchup-y um, uh, tomato sauce. Right. In North Carolina, yeah. you have this kind yeah. of subdivision. So uh, I like I like the vinegar sauce barbecue. Me too. We're vinegar yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, we're vinegar people. Maybe we're a little the, dry rub, vinegar sauce, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah. I get the other, but it's just just a little too sugary. Yeah. I mean, Carolina barbecue is good across. So yeah. is Stamey's your go-to? Stamey's is my go-to, yeah. When okay. I go home, that's what I eat. I eat Stamey's barbecue. Yeah. My go-to is college barbecue in Lexington. Okay. Uh, that's my favorite, yeah. favorite barbecue joint. Uh, oh, wait, I said Lexington, Salisbury, pardon me, S- yeah. College bar- Barbecue in Salisbury. Can we rename this series Pockets Full of Barbecue? We is could. That, is I, that absolutely. possible? Absolutely. Can we find a way to get it into our pocket? Can we buy, well, you wouldn't want to buy cans of barbecue. How do we get barbecue into our pockets without getting all messy? So my dad was a purchasing manager for uh, Konica, which is a camera company. Yeah. And so because he was the purchasing manager, he had to ship things all around the country and all around the world. And some of the chemicals that they use and some of the processes they use require uh, elements to be refrigerated Okay. in transit. 
And for years, he kept saying, I'm trying to find a way <laughs> that I could refrigerate a bunch of barbecue and just send it to you. Yeah. And he never he never cracked that code. He was never able to figure out how to do it and, and feel that he was not going to poison me. Well, I, I, I miss my, my friend Tal Blevins, who moved out east a while back, yeah. who was another North Carolina boy. Sure, yeah. um, I, I've missed him. He, he lived here in the Bay Area for a while, and we worked with Tal together for a while. I miss him for a lot of reasons, but if I'm going to be truthful about it <laughs> and mercenary, it's the fact that Tal would make carolina vinegar barbecue yeah. at his home yeah. every few months here in the bay he would yeah. just take the 14 hours it takes to do it right and yeah. do it and then he'd bring it to you yeah and i, I don't get that anymore it was real good All i right. feel like people want to hear us talk about barbecue for an hour i think they do oh no the barbecue part's definitely bad. well we're very tangential i think you've watched a few episodes of pockets right yeah i've seen a few we're yeah. gloriously unfocused yeah. uh so and people seem to like it i don't know uh do you like it let me know <laughs> But I think it's time to get on point for a second and ask that question that's not really a question. It's always a statement that implies a question that I usually go with until I decide not to, which is tell me about somebody you're thankful for. I thought a lot about this. Uh-oh. Um, and there are tons of answers yeah. um, that I could have gone with. Um, I am thankful for You mentioned Tal Blevins, yeah. great childhood friend of mine. The reason I'm sitting at this table today, honestly, quite frankly. Um, I am from the South, so... Um, you know, Jesus, Mama, and Elvis, I think, are always, <laughs> they always have to be Jesus, Mama, and Elvis. Uh, on that list. Um, uh, but I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if, I, if I'm talking about the the person who's probably had the most impact on me for whom I am uh, grateful for, it's got to be my dad. Your dad. All right. So yeah. dads have been a, uh, a trend on Pockets Full of Soup of late. Sure. I don't know if it's because Father's Day was recently or if it's just because dads are, by and large, a, a pretty important part of our lives in one way or another, either in their presence, sure. negative or positive, sure. or in their absence, negative or positive. Yeah. Uh, it, it, our parents are so formative. Yeah. But we've had a, a lot of father stories uh, of late, and one of the things that that's struck me so deeply about that is that every one of them's been intrinsically vastly different hmm. um it, it really has yeah. we've had had somebody come along and share the story literally of, of the two fathers mm -hmm. who kind of raised them side by side mm -hmm. uh and then somebody else come on and tell us about a, a relationship with a father that turned from starkly distant to to ridiculously close mm -hmm. as life moved along so i'm really interested to hear about your dad steve what is it that makes you choose to talk about him what are you thankful for about your father well, I want to choose to talk about him, I think, first and foremost, because it's a way of um, honoring and acknowledging and recording that gratitude. Huh. And that's 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 what drew me to him as the subject over somebody else for whom I might have a, a different or more enlightening story. You want uh, to record the gratitude like you for posterity? Yeah. 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 Like I'm this is for you, Dad. I am sending Aww. you this link at some point so you can hear me say these things that I should have been saying to you all along. But Hi Steve's dad. Uh, this is my friend Jared. So that right, right, yeah. right there. So your so your father is still alive then. My he, father okay. is still alive. Yeah, okay. my mother passed away when I was about twenty seven, uh, mm -hmm. which was very difficult, and that was uh, that was an area in which I saw him um, exhibit qualities that I just I hope one day to to be able to emulate. Oh, um, um, it's weird. I don't know if you had the situation, but I grew up uh, as sort of a, a cocky, uh, you know, twenty-something person who knew everything, couldn't be told anything at all. Um, just planning out and anticipating how I was going to be um, better than my dad at a lot of things. You yeah, know, I was going to improve upon things and and, and sort of uh, you know advance the ball a little further down the field as far as our family tree is concerned. Um, and now I realize. You know, ten or twenty years past that, um, 
I only hope to be anywhere close to as good a person as he was. What is it that makes your father so good, if, if you're going to try to qualify that? Um, there are a couple things. Uh, first off, he is a man of um, great character. You know, I mean, he is uh, someone who cares and loves freely. Um, and I think that was uh, a correction he made in his life after sort of experiencing what it was like to be his father's child. Mm. Um, and, and my grandfather is a uh, is a very loving, very generous or was a very loving, very generous man, but was not um, great at displaying that. And mm. so my father was never shy about putting his arms around me and saying, I love you. And, and kissing my face, and um, he he is, I think, part of the reason that I hug everybody. Huh. You are a legendary hugger. I am known for that. And you're I, a good hugger. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because I'm okay with that level of affection. Your you know? Did your father do the same? Yes, then? absolutely. Did your father tell you at some point that, that that was a course correction for his relationship with his father, or is that something you've discerned from your relationship with both no, of them? No, he told me. He told okay. me. He said that, um, you know, he... He did not hear from his dad, um, I love you, mm -hmm. as much. And so he made extra sure that my sister and I heard that constantly. Um, and then he, like, it just, it became natural for me. And he would remark years later when I was a, an adult and moved out of the house, um, how happy he was and how touched he was that when all my friends would come over to the house when I was in high school and we were getting ready to leave, that I would come over and make sure that I hugged him and kissed him and said, I love you hmm. in front of, you know, all my friends. Yeah. And it never seemed special or, or distinctive to me. It was just, this is what our relationship is like. Um, and I, it, I was that way with, with my mother and my sister as well. And you've carried that along into your friendships and you've carried that along your father, if you carried that into your family? Into my own? Oh, yeah, yes. into your absolutely. household? Yeah. Absolutely. What else did your father taught you if you carried into your household? Um, I think when I was growing up, uh, the idea of what a father was, um, was somebody who taught you how to throw a pitch or to fix a carburetor. And like, my dad isn't that guy. Really? Okay. Yeah. My dad taught me about Conan and Cthulhu and, <laughs> and comic books. And so, so for me, like a lot of my sort of pop culture references uh, are a result of kind of the weird, strange person that my father was. Um, you know, he was a child of the 50s and 60s, and so he was into um, science fiction and horror and comics and um, all this stuff. And, and, like, that was part of my life growing up. And it's, you know, m my... I think the people who do what we do, it's natural that the nerdiness of you is expressed in the things that you fill your home with. Mm -hmm. And... That's what my life was like growing up. Yeah, you grew up were, around books or were, around yeah, H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, and he had friends come over and we would watch Ray Harryhausen movies. And um, when The Prisoner aired on PBS, yeah, um, great show. In the eighties, he said we've got to sit down and watch this, and he taped it on the VCR. And so we, you know, I got to learn about a lot of things that were a little bit out of step with sort of the cultural touchstones that all my peers were were enjoying. Um, there was a really amazing article on the Onion. I guess it was last week or so that said. Um, uh, you know, father raising his teen to be familiar with references that will put her completely out of touch with her generation. <laughs> and it was a picture of a of like this thirteen year old girl with like a Talking Heads record. Oh, and like, that's 
that was kind of my my jam growing up. Like I I knew who Dobie Gillis was, and I yeah. knew who Beanie and Cecil were, and like and my friends didn't really know that stuff. Um, and so I was a little bit odd. I mean, I was odd for other reasons, but for that especially, um, because he culturally imbued you with that kind of. Let, can, let's roll it back a little on that. Let's uh, for what you know of your father's story, mm-hmm. uh, talking about where he picked all this up. How did he come into this? Was he raised in it? Did he stumble upon it? Where did he find these things? When did he fall in love with this? Uh, well, my grandmother uh, was a painter. Um, she was a professional artist, and uh, I think he grew up with that same sort of interest uh, mm-hmm. as, as I have as well. Like He liked to draw, and he liked to paint and sculpt, and he was very big into the visual arts. And I think that it's... Um, a pretty easy next door transition to be interested in comic books okay. as well, um, especially if you're a kid. You know, mm-hmm. if you're eight or ten years old, comic books are amazing, uh, especially when you're talking about like the early 1960s. Yeah, that um, was a great time to read books. And uh, my grandfather was a voracious reader, huge fan of Agatha Christie. He was a um, he was an engineer by trade, a former bombardier in the Eighth Air Force in England, and. Um, he loved reading and loved like mechanical things and figuring things out. And my dad didn't inherit much of that sort of, um, what's the word that, that technical aptitude, okay. but definitely has that love of reading. Okay. And so our house was filled with books uh, mm-hmm. constantly when I was growing up. And even now, like you go to his home and it's just every wall is a bookcase, just stuffed to overflowing. Did your grandpa approve? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, long answer. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> um, no, they were. I, I guess this is. You come to appreciate people later in life in a way that you didn't at the time, and I think part of it is. Um, part of it is that you only see the outward manifestation of people's intentions. Right? Okay. You only know what people are doing on the surface, and then you sort of guess what that means about their intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a trap. Um, it's the. Uh, whole judge not lest ye be judged thing, right? I think it's a caution against saying, oh, I know what's in your heart because of this thing that you did. Okay. Um, when I was 10 years old, um, I wanted the D&D basic set. Um, and there's a huge... Who wouldn't? There's a huge... Well, <laughs> apparently several people in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, no, my, my, my dad had this friend named Dan Brooks. And uh, Dan Brooks was... Um, a very strange character in our lives. He was a, he was a neighbor when I was growing up, and um, would dress up as Wolfman on Halloween. And like he was a grown man playing dress up and going out to parties, and like he was into all this weird kid stuff. And, okay, uh, and kind of like my dad, and I think they bonded over that. And I, as a kid, thought here are two adults in my life that are really interested in super nerdy things, mm-hmm. and um, I like that. Like I thought, oh, I can still be a grown up and still like. Um, mythology and monsters and all this other stuff okay. that seemed I didn't see any of that stuff at my grandparents' house. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like they had maquettes or weird books around. Um, and Dan Brooks moved away to I guess Atlanta uh, somewhere, and um, he came on a visit back to North Carolina, and he had this book with him called the Monster Manual. Okay. And I was really big into mythology, and I thought it was cool that, like, here's a book that has, like, Pegasuses and Medusa and, like, all these different Which edition are we talking about? This is the first one. This is, like, the, well, maybe not the first one. That was 1977. Right. But D&D or AD&D first? This was D&D. Okay, so OD&D. Wow. Okay. Um, And so I saw that, and I thought, that's really cool. Um, And I found out there was a game of it. And I found that out because 
my father owned a comic book store when I was growing up. What? Yeah. He, when I was about 10 years old, just as the speculator boom was cresting, okay, he said, I want to own a comic book store. And he found an investor who was someone my mom had worked for for a while and with a, a, another partner who you know, knew about comic books, like yeah. my dad did, opened a comic book store. And they started having comic book conventions. And I would go with him to these. Because, yeah. like, I mean, your dad's hosting a comic book convention and you're a 10-year-old kid. Like, you're going. This is a thing that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I did not know this about you. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Uh, so I went to this convention, and it was I, I think it was maybe the first or second one he had done, so it was 1982, 83, and uh, I kind of wandered the floor and checked out the comic books, and there were people there selling like bootlegs of, yeah. of Alien, and like, and here I am, like 10 years old, watching the chestburster scene, and like just loving every minute of it. This is the best thing that could ever happen. Yeah. Yeah. And um, except at jumping out and doing a Chuck Jones dance, <laughs> right, yeah. but uh, I ran out of stuff to do. Okay. Weirdly. Um, and upstairs in one of the convention rooms, uh, somebody was playing a fantasy game and I thought, Oh, that sounds cool. I'll go do that. And I walked into the room and it was this gigantic table, uh, with maybe 12 adults sitting around it and one other kid, uh, this kid who was maybe a couple of years older than I was. And I sat down at that table, little 10 year old me. And, uh, they said, all right, we're playing this fantasy game called Dungeons and Dragons. Um, there's only one character left that you can be. It's the innkeeper's wife. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like I'm a 10 year old kid. I'm slightly insecure about this, but I'm here. I might as well just do this. So you went for it. So I went for it. And I found out the other kid sitting across the table from me, he was also playing a girl. And so we kind of like bonded a little bit over that. Okay. Um, and I remember finishing the game and thinking to myself, I want to play D&D. That sounds awesome. And I found out the kid across the table lived fairly close to me, like less than a mile away. Okay. Um, and I thought, this is awesome. And so I went home, and for my birthday that year, I told my dad, I want to get a copy of D&D. And, uh, no, I told his I told his parents. because they Grandparents, I want yeah, a copy of D&D. Because they, uh, they had money. Yeah. You know? And so Money's I could, nice. I could always ask them for a little bit more than I yeah. would ask anybody else in my family for. So you asked your grandparents. And, um, did you understand the stigma that existed around D&D at that so point? So this is, this, is, this is what I wanted to get to. So in the early <laughs> 80s, there was a satanic panic around Dungeons & Dragons. And there's Mazes and Monsters and the Tom Hanks movie. And, oh, I, I, I own that. Yeah. yeah so yeah, there, there, was, there was so much finger pointing. And there was a, there was a 60 Minutes expose on Dungeons & Dragons where they yeah. interviewed Gary Gygax. And, and it was a very, very dark time for, yeah. for our kind. Yeah. Well, for people who aren't familiar with it, like, can you give like a 30-second explanation of what this was all about? what people were afraid of yeah so uh particularly in the south where uh you know the religious groups were um keenly uh aware of this um there was a fear that kids playing dungeons and dragons and engaging in sort of this theater of the mind play with witches and demons and satanic rituals um would actually corrupt them and make them into real witches and demons and <laughs> satanists <laughs> Um, and it was, you know, it was born out of out of ignorance, and there was a little bit of fanning of the flames by people who I think would benefit from that. Yeah. Um, Tom Chick actually, um, <laughs> or Jack Chick. I'm or, sorry, yeah, yeah Jack, Jack Chick. Chick. Jack yeah. Chick. Tom Chick is actually a really, really dear friend of mine <laughs> who's working in the industry, and I apologize for for maligning yeah. him. But yeah, Jack Chick uh, 
wrote those chick tracks. Yeah. And I'm sure the audience has seen them as little comic books with like moralisms and kind of these heavy handed uh, biblical messages about how we're all going to hell. Yeah. Um, and there was Catholics are evil and uh, etc. There, there's yeah. a very famous one about uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So anyway, so my, my grandparents who, uh, you know, were not they, they were fairly conservative. Yeah. Um, were very concerned about that. Uh, which I only found out years later. Okay. From my perspective, what happened was, as I said, um, hey, granddad, I'd like D&D. Yeah. And then a month later, I got D&D. I found out years later that that was a huge argument about that between my father and his parents. And they were saying to him, um, you know, we don't think it's right for him to get this. We think this is inappropriate. And we've seen all these reports in 60 Minutes and all these you know, news articles about this. Um, and he went to bat for me. No kidding. He went to bat for me and, and said, no, this is fine. Like, this is, you know, make-believe. There are a lot of positive qualities in, in uh, this uh, sort of avocation. Um, just get it for him already. And, uh, and so they got it for me. And so I began to make characters. And, and you know, I, they, it came with the, the dice that you had to color. Remember yeah. You had the crayon. Yeah, you had to I remember that. And the, the, um, uh, the indentations where the numbers went. I do remember those. And, uh, and I played, and I played, and I played, and I played, and this guy who lived down uh, the way from me, like, he came over, and he was part of the group, and then I had a couple other friends on the bus who, you know, lived in my neighborhood. We got off at the same bus stop, and we started playing, um, and we went from that to um, virtually everything else. Um, this kid who was across the table from me uh, at the con had a job at Hungate's, which was the craft and hobby store. Okay. And so, oh. he, so he got a discount, and so we would all go over, and we... <laughs> bought literally everything you know we bought the uh all the palladium games we bought all the chaosium games we played elric we played every superhero game under the sun and so we spent the next four or five years just playing absolutely everything we could and when you're that age and you're into it you've got time to do it yeah, and you can yeah, really do exactly. something so, so i again i i don't want to interject my story into yours but this yeah. is very familiar yeah uh this this is this is the these were my people i feel energized hearing yeah. this so you had a good group and it, and it grew and you experimented rolled through different games mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. pardon pardon the pun and my uh, dad because he was such a lovecraft fan yeah he bought call of cthulhu okay. as a game because for him the same way that 10 year old me saw dan brooks copy of the monster manual with all these you know gargoyles and, and giants and dragons and things in it um he had that same sort of affinity and affection for um Yogg-Sothoth and mm -hmm. Yarlathotep and Cthulhu and the great old ones. And so yep. when there was a book that came out that was sort of like a setting guide and then like a, a bestiary, like he bought that because okay. he, he liked that content. He I don't think he ever had any intention of playing the game. but He just bought it to have it and read it and know it was there or to, to or to give it to you? To have it oh, and to read lovely. it. So um, did he ever play with you? Uh, he would play uh, sort of the tactical versions of some of those games. So we would play like Battletech together yeah. or Car Wars or something like that. But he okay. would, we never played any of the narrative uh, okay. parts of those. But games. he was in for the kind of the one sitting, let's get down here yeah. and have some fight, mechs fight yeah. here for a while. Okay. Yeah. I heard about he, that. He was definitely into that. Um, and so, you know, I spent the next several years um, playing all these RPGs and just uh, really digging into them as much as possible, all because my dad was able to open that door for me, both by, you know, Owning a comic book store where at the convention, like I got to play this stuff and then really going to bat for me with his with his parents when I wanted to own that set. Um, my mother's parents were much more conservative, religiously mm -hmm. speaking, um, but even they were very supportive of it. And so I, I feel like there was a lot of um, a lot of people were advocating for me at the time, which mm -hmm. I really appreciate. 
And the connection to today is that friend who was sitting across the table from me was a guy named Trent yeah. Ward. Okay. Um, who was one of the founders of IGN and the guy who hired me originally. No kidding. Yeah. This is, I mean, 16, 17 years later, um, he called me up uh, when my mother was dying, actually. Because I, I oh. called him when my mom got really sick. Um, I had not really talked to Tal for a little while. Uh, oh, my. he had gone to grad school and then eventually moved to California to found IGN. And um, and he and Trent were working together because we were all friends growing up in North Carolina. And uh, when my mom got sick, we had uh, we had that kind of relationship where I'm sure this has come into a lot of uh, people our age and, and from where we live in the country. Um, everybody's mom kind of stood in for everybody else's mom at any hmm. given moment. You okay. know, so everybody's over at my house, so my mom is sort of like their mom, or yeah. I'm over at their house and their mom is sort of like my mom. So because Trent and Tal um, were such good friends of mine, um, they knew my mom. And so I called them and I said, hey, like, you know, it looks like mom's not going to make it. Oh my. Things are going uh, pretty badly, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and they said, what are you doing for work? And I said, well, I'm working at a, a copy shop. Uh, I was doing like typesetting and, and making copies for attorneys and things for uh, for cases. Wow. And um, they said, um, does that give you a lot of time? You know, do you have a lot of flexibility in your schedule? And I said, not really, you know, but I try to get to the hospitals in the evenings. And uh, they said, we'll do this. Um, quit your job right now and we will let you freelance for us. And we will oh, pay wow. you a certain amount each month um, just until this whole thing blows over. Um, and... Uh, and so I quit my job, and I started freelancing for IGN. And then when my mom died, uh, a few months later, um, they said, what's next for you? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, this freelance thing's been going really well. Why don't you move out here? Hmm. And so I moved out here as a, an associate editor on the PC site, and now I am editor-in-chief. You are editor-in-chief, <laughs> yeah. and it all stems out of that. That's yeah, I mean, that one sort of D&D game. I mean, who knows where my life would have gone otherwise. Maybe some of these same things would have happened uh, because, you know, I, I was friends with Tal in other contexts. Like, yeah. it wasn't just about this. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very important moment in my life, both in terms of enabling me to take seriously the idea of fun um, and also building contacts with me that would last, um, I mean, even to this day, yeah. I'm still benefiting from that. That's amazing. And all this fun. I think I'm struck by the story and, and how this all stems from your father's uh, worldview. I, I want to ask you one more question before sure. we kind of move into the next section. How, is, how has this affected the way you interface with your children and play? Um, I, I think that I, like a lot of parents try to force on them the things that I think are cool so that we have that sort of shared connection of, I like this, so you have to like this too. So we have something to relate on. Um, and half the time it takes and half the time they're just not interested. And so I've learned to be okay with that mm -hmm. because I realize my dad didn't want to play D and D like my dad wasn't into that. What he was into was the sort of the foundational concept behind what it meant to me as a person to mm -hmm. be interested in that. And, and so he didn't have to like D and D he just had to, he had to like me and because I liked it, he liked it. Hmm. And I think that's kind of the way I think about it in terms of, of how I relate to other people in my life is if I love you, I don't have to love the things that you love because I love them. I have to love them because I love you, hmm. you know, and that's not, that requires a little bit of a leap 
And, you know, I mentioned that, that my father's parents um, were, or his dad was maybe not as affectionate with him as he might have liked, or as he was with me, probably mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a more responsible way to say that. Um, but they were very affectionate with me, right? And I think it's sort of like that grandparent effect, okay. you know? Um, so, yeah, I think for me, like thinking about my dad and, and how I want to be a, a parent and how I want to be a manager and a friend and all that other stuff, it's, um, you know, he always says, if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake because you love somebody too much. Hmm. If you're going to make a mistake, don't make the mistake that you didn't care enough. Don't make the mistake that you're that you're making an error based on being hard-hearted. Um, make I, make I, the other error. How are you doing with that? I struggle. I, I struggle sometimes, honestly. But like, it's a constant reminder for me that I can do better there, mm-hmm. and that I can try to love people for who they are, and not because of who I think I can make them be for my own benefit. Hmm. I think that's probably pretty relatable. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think what we're gonna do now that's that's a good that's a good place to to go into the break for a second. We're gonna sure. take a quick break here, okay. and uh, when we come back, we're gonna play a little bit of a, a modified version of the instant noodles round, and we're gonna okay. talk about these games that you love. Oh, geez, uh, for a okay. moment. So that ought to be fun. Before we continue, I want to thank our Patreon producers, Nick Rier and Robert Nieder, whose generous support makes this show possible, and everyone who gives on Patreon. Hey, guess what, guys? The money that you choose to give keeps this show going and really, really, really helps. So if uh, you want to drop a dollar or five or, or, or a million our way, please feel free do at that. any time. Yeah, yeah do, that. do that. We have a lot of uh, Patreon exclusives out there at this point. Pizza and Dinosaurs presents The Thirst of Laser Dracula, now moving into its 12th thrilling episode, as well is single serving our patreon exclusive show and then our monthly patreon exclusive episodes where like last month i think we riffed on harry potter we've talked about potatoes it's weird we do it it's fun uh looking forward to uh, pretty sure this is the month you're finally getting riverdale watch out um uh that one may be so good i have to put it on the main channel uh yeah very excited about the riverdale you're Uh, you're watching riverdale oh i adore riverdale who would you choose as your mate, Betty or Veronica? Well, Jughead's the obvious. Okay, answer. all right. That's, <laughs> that's, that was a trick question. <laughs> you got it right. You definitely got it the right. answer on that one. Yeah. Are you yourself more of a Betty or a Veronica? Uh, it, the Riverdale characterizations, I want to be Veronica, but I'm probably a Betty. Yeah. Uh, both characters are very likable sure. uh, and very flawed because... The current, just, just like us. Have, yeah. Have you watched the current iteration of Riverdale? No, no I've not watched Riverdale. Uh, it is it is delightful. It is, it is the most honest show on television. Um, it is it is everything is turned up to an eleven on mm-hmm. intensity, okay. and they just commit to that, and I love it. Uh, I I uh, I really enjoy uh, like just deep soap opera. Yeah, and. Riverdale's like that is what we are. We are we are mystery. We are intensity. We right. are dark and brooding, and everything is awful. And we love it. And <laughs> and, and I, I like that about the show. Nice. Okay, what about you? Uh, when it comes to the classic uh, comic book, uh, Archie and Jughead and Vetti and Veronica, who do you identify with? Like who's your... well, you you want to be Archie? Uh-huh. I think. I think I'm really more of a Reggie. I think I'm really <laughs> much more of a Reggie. All right, you're Reggie. Yeah. There we go. That's that's. I lo- I also love Jeff the country. I love Archie. I don't know if you knew this about me. Okay. I, I, I adore it. Archie mm-hmm. uh, and that whole weird universe and right. and, uh, and the story behind it is is, is interesting as the story of it. I think I yeah. really like that. But 
this is the show about you today, not what about me. So gonna, I'm going to uh, ask you one more question. We had the, sure. we had the brief break, um, and uh, during that time, uh, you mentioned kind of one more story about how your dad had a very direct effect on how you ended up where you are. And yeah. I, I like this story. I think you should tell it if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, my dad had a lot of uh, great friends growing up. You know, people who were like him, a little bit offbeat. They were painters or writers or like they, they had some sort of um, creative uh, element to them. And one of those guys was a guy named Bill Trotter. And he and my dad worked on a comic book together. Oh, what um, comic? It was called Sam Exegius. It was a local paper comic. It was about a... Um... <laughs> so the premise is that um, a ship full of old artifacts from earth crash lands on this alien world. Okay. And because it's stuff from like the forties and fifties, they begin to get influenced by that. And, uh, one of the things is, um, they start watching a lot of old noir movies. And so one of the characters on this alien world decides to become sort of like a Sam Spade type sold. And he goes on this sort of intergalactic investigation. Totally sold. So my dad, uh, illustrated this story written by Bill Trotter, who was a writer. He, uh, wrote a lot of, um, uh, nonfiction. He um, is a big fan of Jan Sibelius, and so he's done sort of music biographies and sort of the high art world. He wrote about the Russo-Finnish War. He wrote a huge trilogy about the Civil War in North Carolina, from which he was going to uh, eventually write a novel. Um, and then uh, Cold Mountain came out like the very next year, like right <laughs> as he was about to start up, so I thought, I can't, all right, now I can't write that Civil War novel without looking like a hack. Um, Anyway, I'm always a fan of a good hack. So Bill, Bill Trotter, as a writer, obviously had to take a lot of side gigs, and one of his side gigs was um, uh, this column called the Desktop General okay. in PC Gamer Magazine. PC Gamer Magazine started in in my hometown, and so Bill used to go into the office and would write and review games. And this is around the time of um, like Rainbow Six and Red Baron, and you know, uh, Close Combat, and like a lot of these games. And I, I'm sorry, I can't hear you anymore. I just hear the Red Baron music playing <laughs> right, in my right, head, thanks. and the little dynamics. So Bill was a military history yeah. buff, and so okay. like that was his gig at PC Gamer was he would review all the military games, so all okay. the operational level and tactical level war games, uh, and then some of the military sims as well, which used to be huge genres. But they were massive, yeah. right? And so he had a column in PC Gamer, and. Uh, when Trent and Tal were at IGN in the in like 1998, um, they were trying to figure out what do we do to cover all this stuff because they didn't know that, but I knew it because my dad was into the stuff. It's what I went to, partly what I went to college for. Like I studied history and I have a degree in history, and so I was really into yeah World War Two and World War One and and you know ancient Greece. You're the only person that ever gets my Greek jokes. <laughs> sure. Um, and so the leadership at IGN said, hey, like. War games and Sims and all this stuff. This is a burgeoning genre. Um, can we please hire somebody to cover this stuff? And from what I understand, they said we want to get somebody like Bill Trotter, but we can't afford Bill Trotter. Um, and Talon Trent said, We have what we think is maybe the next best thing, which is a guy who grew up with Bill Trotter. So you're the poor man's Bill Trotter? Yeah, as a, as a sort of a family friend. And we would go on vacations together with his family and he would play advanced squad leader with me and just like. He was all in on that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I got this gig mostly because my dad was friends with this guy, Bill. So in one branch, your father instills you with, with the context and knowledge and even some of the relationships uh, yeah. that, that lead you down to the road to freelance writing <laughs> right. and meeting those people yeah. that you meet. And then, again, sends you down. Yeah. 
It's like it's almost impossible for me not to be here right now. Yeah, it's really amazing. How formative. Does your dad, uh, I mean, he knows all this, right? He appreciates it. I don't think he's ever had it said all at once like this. Yeah. But here it is, dad. No kidding. So, wow. So, and, and I assume that, that since you seem to enjoy what you're doing with life, this is a, this is a, this is thanks, not, not blame, right? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, you know, he, he is a big, uh, my dad's a big military aviation buff. Oh, and like, good well, man. Because his father was in the 8th Air Force and like, right. you know, bombing Germany. and B-17s or? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, and so when I would review like uh, Flight Sim, like Combat Flight Sim 3 or whatever, Pacific Theater, um, you know, he would, he would pay attention to that. Like he would come to IGN and read that and send me like little notes about how wow, happy he was. that's really cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What's your dad up to now? He is uh, remarried um, and um, kind of close to retirement, trying to figure out what's next for him. Okay. Um, yeah. Still in Carolina? Still in North Carolina. Still in yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Lovely. When's the last time you saw him? Last time I saw him was um, February. When you not see him again? Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it home this summer, uh, okay. but probably by Christmas. I don't want to commit too much. Yeah, I understand. Committing is um, different. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out a time to get back soon. What are you going to do when you see him next? Well, we're going to go to Stamey's, yeah. right? And then we're going to go to the bookstore. Let's go to Stamey's. That's a good day. That's yeah, a good I mean, day right that's, there. That's what my dad and I do. We go to the bookstore together. I'm one of these people that I can go to a, I can go to a used bookstore with a decent selection, and I could spend literally all day there and not be bored a bit. No kidding. What's, what's your favorite all-time used bookstore find? Oh, my gosh. Uh Something that's just treasure, and it doesn't have to be precious, but just something you're glad you have. You know, that's uh, I wondered about that because I know you love books. I do love books. Um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's so much I could choose from. I have found tons of old RPGs there that I've reclaimed over the years. Um, one of the things that happens when you move to California, uh, particularly to the San Francisco Bay Area, is you sell everything you own yes. because uh, a it's really expensive and you need to raise money, and b because there's no space to have anything. Yes, here. yes. Um, so I got rid of a lot of comic books and a lot of RPGs. Hauntingly like familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm very sad about that. And I've you spent did. the last few years kind of slowly rebuilding that stock. I, re- I you and I actually went in together on a copy of Star Warriors. We did, which is the Weston Games tactical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tactical uh, space combat game in the Star Wars universe. You still have that, right? I still have it. It's Excellent. in my house. And we right never now. played it. We never What's played it. What's wrong with us? I don't know. Oh, okay. We have, we have problems. This, this is not it. We've we got to make some time. The problem is... Uh, well, we're know, doing this instead. Yeah, we do. <laughs> One final question before we head into instant noodles. Sure. Um, so you talked about your father and you said, you know, hey, he played the tactical games right. with us. He didn't play the D&D. He was happy because we were happy. He was happy because we were, he introduced us to the world, to the mythology. Right. I'm going to ask you a, a, a kind of a esoteric question here. Okay. What is that world of paintings and monsters and writing and dreams that there are all these little doorways into? What is that kingdom? What What is that place that you and your dad both went through different doors and found yourselves in? Mm-hmm. And where you keep meeting other people who are, are never exactly like you. You didn't always play all the same games or read all the same books or follow all the same paths. You, you've never, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. drawn comics in coordination with someone. Maybe you have. I don't know. Oh, you have. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> no, well, that's there, fine. That's fine. Okay. There with that. But um, different <clears throat> paths. What is that universe, Steve? I think it is uh, our collective subconscious. 
I think it is sort of like the world of dreams that we all share a common vocabulary in, but aren't always able to articulate. Um, Sound like Randolph Carter. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, when, when you think about when you think about the 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 ancient shepherd, you know, thirty thousand years ago, um, this or the sort of the pastoral nomad um, keeping track of time by the phases of the moon, mm-hmm. right, and and trying to instill upon the 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 immensity and sort of seemingly at once both transient and permanent nature of his reality, um, trying to impose a pattern on that some sort of meaning it's it's the judge not lest you be judged thing like you don't know what's in somebody's heart all you see is sort of the outward manifestation of it and i think there's a Mm -hmm. mythological element of that as well where you have these ideological myths which are you know myths designed to explain why a thing is a certain way yeah um and i think you know uh, ascribing some of these changes uh or some of the permanence uh, of the reality around you um, as the outward result of the working of forces that you cannot see or control, is something very common. Even if you're, even if you're an atheist, or even if you're like a rational skeptic, or even if you are a complete objectivist, I think there is still a part of you as a human being that likes to invent connections for things that seem to be unconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably why we discovered math. Yeah. So I think I think that's part of that's part of why I find that association so easy to make with other people. And when we think about the when you think about uh, Sophocles, you know, twenty five hundred years ago, trying to codify as a form of entertainment uh, these lessons about um, Oedipus or Antigone or these figures that are archetypal that represent uh, something fundamental about who you are and the fears you might have about growing old or, or being unimportant or being too important. Hmm. Um, and, and the idea of, of hubris, uh, that's sort of the mirror image of the concept of arate or excellence, right? Like the Greeks want to be best at everything, but don't be too good. Yeah. It's like Icarus, right? Yeah. You, you don't fly too, don't close fly to the too sun, high. But don't oh! get too close to the water. Either. Yeah. And so like find that middle ground. And so Sophocles and, 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 uh, you know, all Aeschylus, all the other create, uh, writers from that period, are trying to tell you something about yourself by showing you these other figures. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have that common mythology anymore. I think in in the West, obviously, we have this um, Judeo-Christian tradition uh, that, again, it, it's not necessarily anything to do with whether you believe in God or not. It's just these are part of the values that are instilled in our well, culture. Well, we can't have that mythology anymore. We have copyright law to prevent it. Right, exactly, <laughs> right? But there's that, and then that's that's married with this this Greek strand as well, where you know, be excellent, but don't be too excellent. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of the democratic idea there. Um, and I feel like we try to contextualize the mythology of our day with Dracula and Sherlock Holmes and mm. Superman and Conan and Cthulhu, and like there there are ways that writers are using other elements to. Not just entertain us, but to tell us something about ourselves. Mm. And I think that's, you, you know, you mentioned copyright law. Imagine how much poorer we would be today if we couldn't be telling stories about Robin Hood or King Arthur yeah. because they were owned by the estate yeah. of the original person who came up with those stories. And that's why I'm grateful that characters like, you know, Dorothy Gale and Dracula and Sherlock Holmes are able to be 
uh, invested in by other creators and yeah. interpreted in ways that are free from the concerns of copyright law or IP infringement. I think that's one of the reasons uh, people, I've had people say to me, you know, what's the big deal about Lovecraft? Right. I, I think one of the reasons Lovecraft has, has become, beyond the extraordinary storytelling, um, one of the reasons Lovecraft has grown in prominence in our generation is he kind of represents the very, very last IP you're allowed to steal from. <laughs> uh, you know, he's right there on the edge. Yeah, and and right. so he's the, yeah. the last one we looted uh, yeah. for this purpose. And yeah. and I do think there's a lot to that. I, God bless fanfic uh, yeah. for, for giving, yeah. because it, I think it's kind of a primordial scream totally. uh, of the of the same kind of idea you're talking about. But it's funny, like you think about a character like James Bond. James Bond is probably one of the most recognizable characters that have been invented in the last 50 or 60 years. Yeah. And you can't do anything with James Bond unless you go to yep. the people who own James Bond. Yeah. And imagine in 50 or 100 years if the gates were opened and suddenly anybody could tell a James Bond story. Yep. Like, what an interesting opportunity for people to put their own spin on a character that everybody understands or relates to. I think there's real thing with Batman and, and Superman and Captain America, honestly, at this point. Yeah, there's real, there's real value and merit in that idea. And I, I, again, I make my living largely as a writer mm -hmm. and I understand the importance of copyright for keeping what I do for a living lucrative. Yeah. Uh, but there is another side to it. And it's a side that without trying to sound esoteric or up my own butt is cultural. It, yeah. It's, it's something that's a part. And when I say cultural, I don't mean in the, the the museum sense, yeah. uh, or at least not primarily in that. I mean, in in the us moving on into whatever we're going to be next sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, we're going to make that left turn now and head over to Instant Noodles. And this Instant Noodles round will be a little different. Normally, Instant Noodles just throwing a lot of uh, questions at you of kind of a standard thing. We'll go to a couple of them probably sure. still, but your constant. Uh, we we both were raised on on D twenty. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so I, I want to go, go down a road for with okay. you for a few minutes about this mutual love sure. that, that your father helped, uh, expedite your entry right. into. So first off, uh, if you don't play role-playing or tabletop games, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, and not uh, uh, find a way uh, that'd be the, actually, let me ask you that. Is, what's the best gateway drug for, for the hobby of, uh, of tabletop and role-playing gaming? Outside of that hobby, you mean? I don't know. Like what, what leads it, you into it? What would you What would you use to bring somebody in if you're trying to corrupt one of the folds? Because I know <laughs> you've done this with coworkers of ours. Sure, uh, sure. How do you How do you draw people into the fold of gaming? And if folks here are watching, listening, are interested, where What's a good place to step in? Um, well, the new fifth edition of D and D, I think, is probably one of the best they've done in a long, long time. So it is a good entry point, and it probably is the most recognizable of the brands in the RPG space. So um, it's it's an easier sell in some ways than some of the other games because mm -hmm. some of the other games are a little less familiar. Um, so I, I like D&D as a starting point for a lot of people. It probably wouldn't be the first thing I would pick for a new group, uh, none of whom know anything about the hobby because it's a little bit more expensive okay. to buy into. Um, I think something like um, Savage Worlds, Ah. Is is a very fast, fun system. I think that is actually their tagline. Yeah, yeah it's literally their fast tagline. Um, yeah, uh, and that's ten bucks. So I mean, and and the the core rule book is kind of all you need, but it requires a lot of hacking. You know, you have to add a lot of yourself there. So that might be intimidating to new DMs. Uh, Dungeon World is a game uh, that I find absolutely sublime. And have you ever played Dungeon I've World? I've never played Dungeon World. All right, we'll, we'll remedy that soon. Uh, but Dungeon World is a game where uh, all the players share sort of narrative control over what happens. Uh, the dice resolution is very easy. It's very um, 
descriptive rather than prescriptive. Oh, uh, fun. Which I like a lot. So Yeah, uh, you're really into that. I played enough games with you to know that that is, that is a huge avenue for you. Yeah, I mean, you never let the rules get in the way of yeah. the story, in my opinion. I agree. Um, uh, but yeah, I would say Dungeon World, Savage Worlds, uh, and D&D 5e. I mm-hmm. mean, the... I, I say it's expensive. The beginner's box is like 20, 25 bucks uh-huh. and it's everything you need to get a group of four friends down together. Uh, for me, the hardest thing was always finding people to play with though. But fortunately I'm in a situation now where yeah. I can fill a table anytime I want. And even more amazingly, I could fill a table of, uh, all female players, which is, I know a lot of RPG groups struggle with that. And mm-hmm. we're very blessed to live in the area. We do with the community that we have, that they're, so many amazing role players who are just down to play anything you put in front of them. Yeah, I, I, I know the hobby in some ways is not as 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 loud as it once was. I think tabletop <laughs> yeah. gaming has been been supplanted right. in, in what you hear about it now. But in a way, I think it, it might be in terms of the people I encounter playing more diverse than it's ever been anecdotally. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not. but At uh, least from the standpoint of gender for, yeah. for my groups. Yeah. yeah, okay, I wondered about that. All right, follow-up question for that. And then this is an even harder one here. How do you start a group? And not how do you, Steve, start a group, right. but if people out there are just like, I, this role-playing thing sounds fun, do you recommend they go find a group? Or what if they've had three or four friends like, we want to do this? Maybe they play board games together. Maybe they play video games together. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a book club. Maybe they play tennis doubles on the weekends. I don't know. But they're like, hey, we want to do this. Tennis doubles. Hey, instead of tennis, why don't we go play uh, Exactly. Game? Well, you never know. Uh, well, fortunately today, there are a lot of uh, online communities you can join. Okay. I mean, with things like Roll20, uh, Roll20 and, and Google Hangout, there are ways you can play without necessarily needing to be in the same physical space as somebody else. Um, there are, at least here in the Bay Area, pretty frequently there are gaming conventions that you can go to and find other people who are into this hobby. If you have a group of friends that you think are DTRPG, then I think what you do is you make a pitch to them and you explain to them what the concept is, what you want to do, why you think it might be fun, and that you think they will also be fun. Um, and then don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't immediately out of the gate plan this long, you know, episodic campaign that goes on for two years. What you want to do is you want to play a couple of one-shots and kind of get your feet wet and see if it's free. Because even if you're interested in doing this, once you sit down to do it, you might find out this is not the, yeah. ki- the kind of fun I thought it was going to be. How do you get better? Uh, practice and study. Yeah. I mean, honestly, study. The, you said study. How do you study? Uh, I think you learn. I think you read a lot. You know, you understand the tropes of of whatever it is you're trying to represent. You go to. Uh, I, I've been trying to get this uh, wuxia game kind of out of my head onto paper for uh-huh. a while now. Uh, that's sort of like a kung fu panda type thing. <laughs> that's um, awesome. And if you go to TV tropes you know, on the web, you can look through what are the wuxia tropes and suddenly begin to write them down and figure out if somebody's going to engage with this type of content, what are the types of things I need to put in there? Oh, there should be a rival school. Okay, great. Like, I know that's a trope. So in in terms of study, I guess it's just familiarizing yourself with other content that's been created in that genre. Um, If you're going to do a samurai game, watch a bunch of samurai movies, you know, and like, and ingest some of that stuff. Like, begin to internalize the the values and the mannerisms and the and the the visual vocabulary of okay. what those uh, what those settings represent. How do you choose? Uh, how do you choose your GM? Your well, game it's, master. It's me. Yeah. It's me. yeah, in your group, it's always you. It's always me. Okay, what makes you good at it? Uh, I well, that's that's an unfair question. That puts me on the spot. So well, I know you're good to, at it. To, to brag about myself. No, I I know you're good at it. Just be confident in this. You're a good GM. Okay, so number one, be a fan of your players. 
I mean, you are you, you shouldn't go take it easy on them, mm-hmm. but your players are there to be heroes, and you're there to allow them to be heroes. And so, if they have a super dumbass idea, but it's kind of allowable, just go with it. Mm-hmm. We we played a recent game um, where the characters were all pirates, and they were trying to get up to this floating island in the sky. And I had no idea what they were going to do. Like, I just said, here's the problem. You guys figure it out. And what they decided to do was to um, tie a rope around a cannonball and shoot it over the island as sort of like a like a grapple. And I said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. But, like, I like that idea. Let, that, that can happen. Mm-hmm. If you roll well enough, that can happen. So I think the idea of being willing to go along with whatever the players say is important. Okay, um, It's the yes and and no but rule of improv right? mm-hmm. where you know you're bringing something to the table i have to affirm the reality of that thing and then add my own thing to it and so i think for me the the area where i see most gms fail or one of the areas where i see most gms fail is they come up with the problem and the solution ah and you, it's not your job to come up with the solution your yeah. job is to come up with the problem the, the 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 dialectic for rpgs is the gm constantly is adding complications yeah and the players are constantly simplifying okay and so like the tension between those two areas i think is where the fun lies okay i'm trying to make things harder for you and you're trying to make things easier for yourself um but you never want to get into a place where you have an adversarial attitude toward that it's not about i'm smarter than you because i came up with this puzzle that you can't solve no here's this puzzle what amazing thing is going to come out of your mouth Next, it is it, it, that that wonderful improvisational aspect of it. I think a lot of times the honest gets put entirely on the players to improvise. Sure, uh, in bad game yeah. masters, uh, yeah. change change the story, man. Just yeah. change it at that moment. You do that, I know. Yeah. Uh, you're just like, oh, you don't tell them you changed it, yeah. uh, but you just go for it yeah. and take the risk and and see what happens because we, it's more fun. So, uh, I was running a game once where I had put in place um, these stolen goods. And uh, the players had come in possession of them and were supposed to deliver them somewhere. Okay. And my whole mystery was where did the goods come from? That was what (laughs) they were going to have to chase down. Okay. But one of the players at the table said, I bet there's something hidden in these. And I thought, oh, that's a much better idea. (laughs) And so, like, I didn't say that out loud, but, like, immediately, yes, like, this player said something that was better than what I had in mind. And so I put something in there, and then they found it, and it took them off in this other direction. Yeah. Um, And so, like, just being open to changing your plans is also a big part of it as well. I always really enjoyed that. I had a a GM in uh, Florida. His name was Jesus. Shout out to Jesus. Dogs of War Gaming, uh, Palm, uh, Palm Bay, Florida. Great game store. Uh, lo- wonderful place but uh jesus we i liked what you said about adversarial and creative he was never easy on us as a matter of fact his nickname was stingy mckay the loot um <laughs> that was that was what we called him but he was delightful in that engage you, you could tell he wanted us to have a good time yeah. and it was never it was always just the right amount of sadism on his mm-hmm. part uh to, to make us he just grin and grin yeah. But it wasn't about beating us down. It was about knowing the triumph was going to be all the sweeter yeah. when we made it. And that it was fun. I really enjoyed it. He was great in working with that stuff. I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think Jesus popped into my mind because he had my favorite in all of nerddom. This is my favorite joke. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even all that great. And if you're not deep into the more annoying aspects of, of comic book role-playing culture, that you won't get this. Right. But... 
His name is Jesus. Jesus uh, spelled out. I'm familiar. And he, yeah, I'm familiar with this guy. And he owned a comic book store, and there was a sign that hung behind where he sat all day at the counter, and it just said, "Jesus loves you." but he doesn't want to hear about your character. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think that was yeah. one of my favorite things so I've true. ever seen. It's uh, so true. I, I loved it so much. Jesus loves you, but he doesn't want to hear about your character. Nothing is more interesting to you and more boring to everybody else than that civilization game you're playing right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like shout out to Dan Stapleton. It's all, uh, <laughs> it's all you want to talk about. Oh my God, you won't believe what, what Gandhi did. And it's like, not only do I not believe it, I don't even care. <laughs> That's so delightful. It's true, though. I, you there's know? that element. Well, yeah, we want to. You want to share your joy with people. Yeah. That is, I worry about that on my show all, all the time. I, I know yeah. there are moments where I've done that. But Let's, it's like we were talking about before. Like it's it's storytelling. It's that place of connection that you find with other people when you want to share that understanding you have of the pattern of life. Aw, I feel warm and happy now. <laughs> What's your favorite die? My favorite die is the D12. Ah, the there D12 we go. The D12 is the best. The D12 is also my favorite die. The D12 <laughs> is so good. The, the, the D4 is the worst. The D4 explodes more in Savage Worlds, which I like, mm-hmm. but the D4 sucks. Uh, the D12 is the best die. Okay, why does the D4 suck? The D4 sucks because there's far less opportunity for things to swing with mm-hmm. the D4, right? Like it does... You're, the best you're going to do is a four. The worst you're going to do is a one. Just the window is far too small, or the or the range is too small. Okay. And then it's just it it it's ugly. It doesn't roll well. It's aesthetically unpleasing to try to get it to roll across the table because all it does is just plunk down. It is also the only thing in the world that hurts worse to step on than a Lego. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty sure caltrop. Yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. But yeah, okay. So D four is 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 right. worse die in your mind. You mentioned not a lot not a lot can swing on it. Do you have any opinion on the D6 average wargaming die, the two, three, three, four, four, five die that's sometimes used in war games? No. Okay, I wondered, because it doesn't swing as much either. That's the whole purpose of that die. Yeah, but you, normally you're rolling more of those dice, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, you are. Yeah. So, so I'm playing a game of Fate right now, and Fate has dice that are just plus, minus, and blank. Yeah. And so there are only three options on those D6 as well, but you roll four of them, so they're... What eighty one separate options between minus four and plus four ways things can go yeah. definitely. What I, about- it, I, it's got that bell curve too. That's so one of the things I don't like about D and D. I don't like D twenty systems because the the probability curve is just flat, mm-hmm. and so you're just as likely to get a twenty as you are to get a one as you are to get a ten. And for me, I like I like Savage Worlds. I like GURPS. I like games where there's a curve, mm-hmm. you know, where most of the results are going to be kind of middle of the road. Now, that's interesting because you don't like champions uh, or you don't like playing it. And champions may have the may have the best curve of all of them. Yeah, but champions is uh, it's too much. <laughs> Mechanically, that game is far too dense. I, I, I like I like that level of simulation in some areas of my life. But as I get older, like I find myself drawn more to to fate and savage yeah. worlds and dungeon world and apocalypse world stuff that just flows. And even I mean, even D&D 5e is as good as it is and as streamlined as it is um, at the higher end of some of your character levels. Combats can take a long time. Yeah. And there was a version of me that didn't have a job. You know, when I was yeah. 13 and 14 years old, that didn't mind that. But now that time is a little more precious. Um, and now that I understand there's something else that I'd rather get out of the role-playing experience. Yeah. Not that I'm anti-mechanics. I love the crunchy bits of games. I think they're super fun. I just bought Mutes and Masterminds by Steve Kinson. And oh. that game is very crunchy. Not a game I'm familiar with playing. Like I, I You will be soon. All right. Excellent. Yay. What, you, let's go back to the D12. What yeah. makes the D12 great? 
uh, all the things that the D4 isn't, right? It has a satisfying role. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a it's got a heft. It's got enough faces that it it rolls in a very fulfilling way. Mm-hmm. The D20 rolls too much, in my opinion. Ah, you know? okay. Yeah, it'll roll off the table a lot. Yeah, D12 roll doesn't table. roll off the table much. Um, in D12, you can get a 12 on it, right? That's like it's fun. that's a super high. Number. It's you know, <laughs> other than the D10, it's like it's you know, it's a double digit, which yeah. is rare mm-hmm. in the dice pool, um, and it looks good too. I just, I, there's something about the shape of it. I would deliberately use an axe in, uh, uh, sorry, in uh, 3.0 D&D so I could roll a D12 for damage. Instead of the like, 2D6 instead, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the long sword. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, wanted, I wanted to roll the 12. It was so much fun. It's funny because there there's a whole community of role players out there that see that as a suboptimal choice. And like they're, it is they're, suboptimal. They're playing for the mechanical sort of value and advantage. And to me, like, I like making an aesthetic choice that is maybe suboptimal from a math standpoint. Yeah. Just because it fits in with what my character wants to do. Like I took I take brewing as a skill. I'll never use it, but like that's what my guy is. He's a brewer. Oh, I know. I love that. There's a. Uh, I, I was talking about champions earlier, but in the fourth edition champions book, there's a there's a page that's just nothing but jokes about power gaming. Right. It's like here's how to create every broken character in our system. Right. It's completely legal. Right. And don't do it because it's not fun. Right. And they right. just explain all of them. And I'm like, oh, this is that's adorable. I yeah. love it. That's so, so good. What is your follow up again? Your all time favorite die, your favorite single cast piece of plastic or whatever in the universe to roll. Do you have one that you love more than all the others? Oh, like like not just D12s yeah. in general, but that D12. Do you have one? Die out there that you that is your favorite. I don't. I I, I, I don't have that sort of totemistic attachment to dice. Uh, and, and also when when you become a, a DM uh, or a GM, you just buy a lot of dice. So you do. I have I have a big pile of dice, and I I love them all equally. Yeah, except di- for the D fours, which I don't care as much for. Dice buying is the steam summer sale of of tabletop sure. role playing. Yeah. You're just like I just will always want more of these, yeah. and I will probably never roll ninety percent of them. But it's... well, and you get to a point where you know if you, if you're playing a game that uses all six or seven dice, and you have plenty when you bring new players over, you give them yeah. their own dice. These are your dice now, and you. Take them with you, but bring them back every week because these are yours. Yeah, and that that gets people a little more invested in the game. And I keep them tucked away. I have a set of dice at the office just in case. I yeah. have a set. Yeah, just just you never know when you'll need them. I and mean, I know you always kept them around. Oh, I have right? yeah, tons of dice all over the office. I I don't usually like to interject too many of my own stories, but I do have a talismanic die, which is why I asked. Bring it. I, what are we when I was about? in college, we were we were playing uh, we were playing AD and D second edition. Uh-huh. I was GMing, and I was trying to follow the the that kind of a. Uh, mode of operation that you described you know do it for the players but i accidentally wiped a party uh once in an encounter with man scorpions Uh where i have this black d20 with with red lettering on it Uh and it was just that's ominous yeah but it looks kind of cool i mean it's just a plastic die but i rolled five natural 20s consecutively (laughs) which I don't know mathematically what that comes down to, right. I, but I just kept rolling natural 20s. Right. And I was trying to give the party an out, right. and every time I would try to give them out, I would kill someone else right. and finally killed them all, and we had to start over. But since then, I've kept the die of five natural 20s, and it's kind of like the black arrow that, that right. Bard of Lake Town right. keeps... Do you still roll it? I mean, did I it roll go into it, retirement? It goes into the box, uh-huh. and I bring it out. It's like with, with smogs flying over the town. It's like, Black Arrow, I have saved you for last. <laughs> Always you have. If I go into the box and I pull out the die of five natural 20s, right. it is time. Does it continue to? It always delivers. It doesn't wow. always deliver a natural 20. Right. But it always delivers 
Curiously, it seems to always deliver exactly the role I need at that moment. Huh. Interesting. But I also don't abuse its power. Yeah, well, like, of course. I, I respect its power. You I think, use it up. Yeah, so I put keep it, keep it in there. Yeah. Okay. All right, so that was not... I don't know why I told that story. No, I, I love that, that story. <laughs> it's kind of weird. That's uh, absolutely yeah, I, relatable. Um, we've talked a lot about, about systems, and uh, you've talked a lot about uh, newer games. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your favorite new RPG to play? Uh, right now, I'm playing Fate, which I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's very interesting in the way that it defines what characters can and can't do because it uses language as much as math to mm-hmm. decide what characters are. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Millennium Falcon would have an aspect on it that's the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. Okay. right? And because it is called that, uh, players and the Game Master can leverage that title uh, to either invoke a positive aspect of being the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy um, or a negative aspect, and you know, oh, the hyperdrive wow. breaks or whatever. That's beautiful. I love that. Actually, yeah. I think we played this together, didn't we, at one point? Or, no, we no, didn't play Fate. We played you were, Fiasco. We played Fiasco, we but played you fiasco. no, but you were you were bringing Fate into the office yeah. right around that time. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And you were describing this vividly to me. Is it as much fun as it sounds like? So far, yeah. This is my first time running it and the first time playing yeah. it for the group that I'm with, but we're having a lot of fun with it. I want to. One of my favorite role playing experiences was a Jurassic Park one shot, and now I want to play that in Fate so I can just go clever girl over and over yeah, and over yeah, again. Totally. That'd be fun. Um, what about old stuff? What about old games? Where 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 does your heart belong? And if somebody wanted to it wanted to go back and explore an old game, right? Where would they, where would you send them? Well, it depends on the subject that they're interested in, right? Like if they're if they're fans of horror, here's what I would say. If they're fans of superheroes, here's what I would say. It, all things being equal, um, the game that I am probably most attached to emotionally is the old TSR Marvel superheroes game. Um, it had a wonderful swinginess, mm-hmm. you know, where you have Daredevil next to the Hulk, and there was a scale upon which you could measure each character's strength. Um, and the same thing with you know Professor X or Doctor Strange or or these other characters that are at the other end of or at the far end of you know other attributes. Um, that game did a really good job of of fulfilling the setting of being in Manhattan with the Fantastic Four and so Spider Man. So it felt right. So yeah. it, they got the they got the flavor of that world just right, and it was mechanically simple enough that you could. Um, you could wrap your head around it without too much worry. There's a new version uh, of that that was published by Margaret Weiss, designed by Cam Banks, uh, based on um, the leverage system, which is all about dice pools and and sort of that fate-style justification mm-hmm. of Kitty Pride is a computer whiz, therefore on this computer thing she's going to pull in additional dice to help her succeed, um, which I, I, I kind of liked it. Um, it wasn't as strong for me as uh, Marvel superheroes. Uh, but Steve Kinson, the guy who made Mutants and Masterminds, did a, a very like light beer and pretzel style game called Icons that feels a lot like the old Marvel superheroes game, and I've enjoyed running that. I love well. that you use beer and pretzels. I haven't heard that in a long time. That's the thing, though. Like, you, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, this I know is what, what I was mean. talking about. This is why I like talking with you because I don't have to search for a, a more digestible or accessible <sighs> frame of reference. I haven't heard that phrase in a long time, and I love beer and pretzel. So, games. <laughs> so what are beer and pretzels games for people? Who beer don't and pretzel know? games are games that may not be mechanically or mathematically elegant, but are just fun. Yeah. You just jump in. You're like, I know how to play this. Yeah, it's delightful. Um, I feel like Munchkin is a is, yeah. a, is a kind yeah. of a fun, which is ironic considering what Munchkin is. But, <laughs> right, right. But, and, but maybe even more of a beer and pretzels game than than Munchkin is. Did you ever play uh, 
uh, Snitz Revenge or Snitz. I never played Snitz. Okay, I mean, I've heard you talk about Snitz is one of my favorite beer yeah. and pretzel games. Yeah. Just like there's nothing deep going on here, but this is so much yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not crunchy. It's not elegant. It may not stand up to to repeated play. If you're going to scrutinize the system, you can almost always find a way to game and optimize yeah. a beer and pretzels yeah. game. Yeah. But who cares? Yeah, you know, it's, you're there to have fun. You're yeah. there to discover what happens when you play. That's another, uh, I guess, principle of good GMing. And you'll find a lot of these in the Dungeon World uh, RPG book. But like, you don't show up with a story already in your mind yeah. with an ending. What you show up with is a premise, and then you play through, starting from that premise to find out where it goes. I love that. It, it, it's I don't want to call it disposable entertainment because all entertainment is 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 experiential. You very sure. rarely get. You just want to make a wonderful moment. I think it's kind of the Beer and Pretzels games or something like Icons is kind of like the the um, tabletop equivalent of walking up to the old six-player X-Men arcade game <laughs> and just all pumping quarters in. Yeah. There's not a lot going on, yeah. but you're having a great time yeah. with a bunch of friends, and then you walk away. Yeah. Uh, and I like that. I like it that is very that. experiential. I take exception, though, about entertainment being disposable, though. Okay. Like, would you say that about the Odyssey, that that's disposable? Oh, no. I'm talking more about the moment. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I apologize. Like the, no, like you the, carry like it with you. And actually, I think, no, I, I think I misspoke, though, right. even so. Right. Uh, because you, when you carry those moments along, they fuel new moments. Yeah. They're the memories of the stories you cling to. They're what you think about in the dark night of the soul, They're the things that bring you back. I, I mean, I, I really do think most of us learn most of the lessons we're ever going to learn by the time we're... 20 it's just we keep getting reminded about those lessons in the moments where we forget life beats us down horrible things happen right we lose our way and someone comes and finds us and usually they do it by reminding us of the way things really are or the other part of the way things really are that's why i do the show Hmm. Uh, this this show is for all its its flaws and silliness the idea is just hey we're not going to deny awful things exist because good Lord, there's plenty of evidence that awful things hold sway over the world. Yeah. It's just, by the way, this is a part of it too. Yeah. That's all. So that's uh, very affirming. I like that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I don't like the part about it all being awful, but I like the part about finding joy in the midst of it. You try. I, again, I, yeah. I, I fail more than I succeed. That's yeah. a funny bet. Um, I don't, I have trouble applying the lessons that I, <laughs> try to instill here to my own life but, yeah. but i think that's that just reminds it's me of being common. in the clergy again yeah. uh you know right. just like oh yeah i don't know how to do this last question uh because we we've uh, we've we've talked a while here and i've kept you and you've got places to be that's um right. we always ask our guests cake or pie uh cake cake yeah cake. Eh, that's the wrong answer but i'll accept <laughs> i that. mean there's some there it's First off, it is it assumes that all cakes are equal and that all pies are equal, which is totally there, untrue. There are certain pies that I would prefer above cake, but at the end of the day, if you're just asking cake or pie, I'm going with cake. What is what is uh, optimum cake? What is uh, what is the min max of cake? Wow. Okay, so there there are a couple of different answers to this, but probably today, if you were to put that question to me, would be um, white cake uh, with. I don't like buttercream icing. I like the sugar icing. Ooh, sugar icing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with strawberries, like fresh cut up strawberries. Mm. You ever had cake in Japan? I've never been to Japan. Oh, you should first. You should go to Japan okay. because it's neat, and second because they have the best what you those three elements together yeah. in one place that I've ever had. Like that's a very typical style of of cake there, and it's marvelous. They okay. really had to have that down. Okay. Yeah. So go to Japan, eat some cake. We'll do. On the pie front, I like the uh, I like the chocolate mousse pie. Um, 
but I like the uh, no M O U S S E. And the the blueberry. I'm a big fan of the blueberry pie. Oh, I like I like the gosh. berry pies. I have not had a blueberry pie yeah. in way too long. Yeah. Um, Are you or, a cobbler guy at all? Oh, I'm totally a cobbler guy. Okay, and right. again, I, I avoid sweets in general, although I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I. I I would swim in blackberry cobbler if I could. Okay. Um, yeah. Although I love blueberry and peach cobbler and right. actually apricot cobbler. Mm-hmm. Really good. Oh, man. Or persimmon cobbler. Wow. Oh, you, Now you're just cobbler. Naming, naming everything that can be a cobbler. Oh, what? No, no. There's plenty of other things that can be cobblers. I mean, that we, we, we go down a cobbler. <laughs> Did yeah. we start out talking about food? <laughs> I think we talk about food a lot on Pockets Full Soup. Yeah. I, I really have thought about spending off a food show. Yeah. Like spending one off just, just talking about well, it. Well, I mean, the I mean, title of the show itself references food, so it's hardly something. Surprising. It's mostly a matter of just finding the time. Like I, yeah. I and that sounds so ridiculous, but but uh, what else do you have going on today? I mean <laughs> there's a lot to do today. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, there's it's it's a holiday weekend, but there's a lot to do. Yeah. So um you know how that is. Yeah, absolutely. You got I'm a place to be from here. A little, so. little busy today, yeah, but right. but I'm super glad that I made time for this. And, Thank and you for making I, time. I remember when you pitched the idea of the show to me. Um I thought, what a wonderful Aww. manifestation of just who you are as a person and your your willingness to not just focus on gratitude for yourself, uh, even as you said, you know, while the world throws punches at you and and, and things don't go your way, but to um to be intentional about drawing that out of other people in your life and to spread it around. I really appreciate what you do. I've been pleased to discover i am really am trying to to reach out to more and people guests from different backgrounds but one of the things is that no matter where i've reached out everybody's got a story yeah it's kind of everybody's got somebody they're thankful for yeah and that makes me feel good about the world yeah yeah everybody knows what it means to be thankful it seems uh, or everybody i've asked so far yeah it's kind of great so. it's also a nice antidote to um some of the other types of expressions that I think are more common <laughs> on the internet as well. So it's it's a it's a corrective influence. I hope I try. I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Of course, um, yeah. I, I find myself screwing up in that more often than I'd like. But yeah, uh, I hope so. I hope it's a, an, another another part of the story. Uh, and uh, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. I, uh, so again, uh, you uh, you work for that uh, that that their website. Uh, I do that IGN. You do that IGN. So yeah. if you want to hear more from this guy. Uh, well, don't go to IGN because I'm not. I'm, I'm all behind the scenes at this point. Um, What's the last thing you did on camera? Um, uh, probably an E3 predictions, or okay. like what we're most excited about piece kind of thing. Uh, okay, E3. I don't know. I, I try not to put too much of myself uh, into the content that goes up directly on IGN. I, I'm happy at this point just to facilitate the success of other people. In that trust area. the people you, that work yeah. work with to do yeah. that. Yeah. Cool. Every once in a while, though, there is a topic where. Like they need an older guy who knows something. <laughs> it's time to talk I'm, about flight sims. I'm right there. It's so funny because I was thinking. Of, I was thinking about the uh, when we did the that original history of awesome, and it was the yeah. 1977 episode, and it was you and me and Talon and Jim Vavita, and it was like old dudes the, talking about old things. So, well, I remember one of the comments was, "It looks like these four guys are all together for the same casting call." <laughs> I was like, yeah. Pretty much, it was, but for that particular episode, we were who we had around for that yeah. day. I think, so and we got to talk that. about. D&D. Yeah, we did get to talk yeah. about D&D. We talked about D&D a lot. Yeah. Uh, thank you, old friend. Thank you, Jared. Uh, thanks for coming. And guys, thank you. You can mail us at mail at pocketsfullofsoup.com. We'd love if you did. Uh, follow us on the Facebook group, Pockets Full of Soup Facebook group, because it's free. It's fun. You meet new people there. And at all, etc. Uh, more coming soon. We are 
like I don't know. I was gonna say nose diving, but that well, that would probably be apt. I was gonna say we're nose diving toward our fiftieth episode, but but I <laughs> no, think that's, that that's the wrong phrase. No. Falling like an anvil toward Wiley Coyote's head. That's us. <laughs> All right, there we go. Anyway, we're headed toward 50. We got some stuff planned around that. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Season two is coming up soon. So bye-bye.